Long COVID is a condition plaguing many Americans in the wake of the pandemic, and treatment for long COVID symptoms isn't standardized and can be hard to come by. So, how do hospitals care for patients experiencing long COVID symptoms? With specialty relationships, holistic care, and patient-directed treatment goals. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to another episode of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. So I'm excited, Rachel, because today our guest is someone that has a vast amount of experience uh, in something that you and I have been talking about on local media Mm -hmm, stations, mm -hmm. as well as our Facebook Lives, about the impact of what we call long-term COVID. Right. Okay. And we, as you know, and we'll get into it, we've done some things here at Hillsdale Mm -hmm. uh, to try to help that cause for our patients. But I'm really excited uh, because um, our guest today is someone who's pioneering Uh, care for those long COVID symptoms for patients that are in need, running a program uh, that is helping patients get the relief and restore ultimately their quality of life. That's right. We are talking with someone who is doing the work and also educating others, including through a book that he recently wrote on this very subject. And certainly his uh, clinical expertise is much broader than you or I, since we have none. Um, And also uh, the work that he's doing is much broader than even what we've done here. That's very specific that we'll talk about in a little bit specific to one issue with long COVID. But this is really big picture. Well, I am excited. And I have to guess that where he's from, he also knows how to make some really good ribs. But we're going to find out about that because I understand (laughs) Tennessee has some great rib joints. But we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So our guest today is James Jackson, Director um, of Behavioral Health ICU Recovery Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, located in Nashville, Tennessee. And it is my privilege to welcome you to Rural Health Rising. It's great to be here, JJ. And uh, Rachel, good to see you again. And uh, yes, I can make good ribs. I'm much better at at brisket, (laughs) much better at pulled pork. All right. But next time you're in Tennessee, come on over. I'm going to do it. We'll fire up the green egg and get after it. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, welcome. It is so great to have you in the studio today. And we have a lot to talk about. You're doing some great work. And we're just excited to get that conversation rolling. I'm excited because we don't do as many episodes where we get into some of the direct and bigger picture patient care issues. We get into a lot of the, um, you know, structural and operational issues and advocacy stuff. But this is going to be really exciting because it is very innovative and it's such a really kind of a new area of medicine in a way. It is. So to start, Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your work at the ICU Recovery Center at Vanderbilt? It's really apropos the question because I'm not too far as the crow flies from my hometown, Portage, Michigan, which I think is yeah, an hour and a half yeah, or so is. away from yeah. here. Yes. And, uh, Michigander, right here. Exactly. Which is why we're lucky we get to have you physically in the studio yes. with it's us. It's lovely to be here. Most yeah. of our guests from other parts of the country, we only see on a computer screen. Exactly. So this is yeah. really cool. It's, great. it's so lovely. I, you know, I look for opportunities to get back here anytime I can. My mom and dad still live in the house that I grew up in. Wow, that's and awesome. It is lovely. And uh, they're not getting any younger. They're doing no. fine. Yeah. But it was great to see them the last couple of days and then to drive over here. It's and fantastic. Um, gr- I grew up in Portage, um, moved to Virginia, then later to California for graduate school, uh, earned a PsyD in clinical psychology, did a residency at Vanderbilt, um, 
Didn't think I would be a researcher, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't quite sure what I would be. And uh, the man who is now my boss, Wes Ely is his name, he was founding something that has become the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center. It was very modest in those days. It's a big operation now. Mm -hmm. And he needed a psychologist, really a warm body. And I was one. (laughs) And uh, he really uh, offered me a job with a handshake and actually has been a career of real flourishing working in this space Mm -hmm. of chronic illness. And uh, COVID-19 turning into long COVID for many people is absolutely a chronic illness. So that's the space that I'm working in and in this chronic illness space. And we're excited to talk a little bit today about some of the research and work you've done. And we're going to get into the weeds. Before we do that, um, I want to ask you a question. And we ask this question of each of our guests to get to know them a little bit better and for our listeners across the country to say, all right, who is that gym guy that you have in your studio? Um, I, I want to know what your why is. And I want to know what motivates you, what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the amazing work that you're doing. What is your why? It's a great question. Um, Long before I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, I wanted to be a sports psychologist. Is that right? I was a good but not great athlete. I was really intrigued by sports psychology. I was really planning to study that. Hmm. And I had a mentor in college, and we talked about it, and he said— you know, that's a fine career. There's nothing wrong with that. He said, at the end of the day, though, you're helping people subtract a few points from their golf game, right? And wow. that was really a challenge that to me. It does wake you up. It did. And yeah. I, th- I I thought, you know, no disrespect to the sure, sports psychologist sure. listening here, yeah, right? right? But right. I thought, I want to do something that is more consequential in the lives of people, yeah. that make a, makes a difference sure. in the lives of people. Um, in our research group, we often talk about the idea that our desire is, with our research, to impact people that we will never meet, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. engage research in a way, to write papers, to do work Mm -hmm. that will impact people that we met. And one of the impetuses of writing my book, which we'll talk about later, was this notion that I could really impact people for the good, um, but they could benefit. And and I think that why is really important. And I think unless we get that right, Mm -hmm. right, unless we get that right, um, I'm not sure that uh, we can optimize the work we're doing. It has to start with a why. Absolutely. And I definitely can tell you're a servant leader. And uh, I think we'll f- we'll get some of that out here in our in our interview. But it's great to hear your perspective. Uh, a wonderful why. I mean, uh, impacting so many lives. Uh, we're going to talk about the book and its impact, and uh, encourage our listeners to also uh, get a copy of that book. But again, it's just great to have your perspective with us. Yeah. So let's lay the foundation here on long COVID. What is it? Has it been clearly defined yet in the medical community or is it still kind of nebulous? Mm -hmm. Um, So also, how is it affecting the patients who are suffering from it? So patients coined the term long COVID and it has a lot of popular appeal and that's lovely. What it doesn't have is a lot of precision. You know, if you ask the man on the street, you know, that you meet at the grocery store, what's long COVID? I have no idea what he might say. And if you actually even engage the uh, physician class, if you will, Mm -hmm. and say to them, what's long COVID? I think you'll talk to 100 different people. You'll get probably 30 or 40 different answers. So it's not well-defined. I think in general, it refers to this idea that 
after your acute COVID symptoms are gone, you have persistent problems Mm -hmm. that have lasted typically, we think, for a period of months. Mm -hmm. And these symptoms typically in the context of long COVID occur in what I call the unholy trinity, if you will. And that unholy trinity is mental health problems, often PTSD, depression, sometimes OCD, Mm. cognitive problems, which really mimic brain injuries, Mm. and physical problems, which predominantly for most people, if they show up, are in the domain of fatigue, profound fatigue. Mm. So Mm -hmm. cognitive deficits, mental health challenges, Mm -hmm. incredible fatigue, problems that persist in some of the patients that we engage with, problems that persist for two years, for three years that aren't letting up Mm -hmm. fully three years later. And that, in effect, is long COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, so so this is interesting to me. Um, Can we go back onto the side of mental health and mental wellness? Um, What is it about COVID that has such an impact at that level? People ask this question, that is, how does how does long COVID impact mental health? Yeah. How does it cause it? And uh, I think one perspective is a, is a biological one, that there's something about mm. inflammation, for instance. There's something about inflammatory processes that could drive the development of mental health difficulties. But I think more often than not, it's very practical, the connection. Mm-hmm. And the practical connection is you've got long COVID, and so you can't work, and so You've lost True. your apartment or you lost your house or worse yet, you've lost your identity. You yeah. know, you were a runner. This is true of many of our patients. And that yeah. was what you love to do. You can't do it anymore. Sure. You can't engage in touch football games in the backyard with your kids. You yeah. know, your life yeah. has really been robbed is what our patients say. And I think for most people whose lives have been robbed, yeah. right, of vitality and, and the richness they enjoyed, it's quite logical that you would experience some amount of depression or anxiety. Yeah. And that's what we highlight for them, that that when you're faced with difficult circumstances, often mental health challenges are the norm. Yeah. But mm-hmm. saying that um, is one thing. Convincing mm-hmm. patients that it is okay to experience those difficulties is quite another. There's incredible mm-hmm. stigma and shame there is. Uh, related to many of our patients who feel like, I'm depressed, but I shouldn't be. I'm anxious, but I shouldn't be. I don't want to tell anybody about it because yeah. I'll be mm-hmm. marginalized. I'll be dismissed. Uh, mental health stigma is a, it's a huge problem. It is. Uh, right. I, Jim, I want to share with you, and uh, you may not have had a chance to come on our podcast or come across our podcast, but we actually interviewed a uh, Michigan Supreme Court justice mm-hmm. uh, and um, Justice Bernstein. Uh, he's blind. And uh, he shared with us a remarkable story. Actually, I think it was in a two-part series or a three-part series. I think we broke it into two because of how long it was because we were having such a a, a great conversation. And all three of us were were, our big talkers. So that was a long one. But but he talked about the impact of COVID on uh, those with disabilities and how that transformed his life. And just recently in the news media. Uh, in its made national uh, attention recently, uh, was the fact that he took a leave of absence from the bench to seek mental health uh, treatment. And he will tell you that that was primarily born out of his seclusion during mm-hmm. COVID. He couldn't, how he dealt with people was touching, right? Face, face to face feeling. Um, 
he lost all that Zoom calls. He couldn't even register to get in them, mm-hmm. but then he couldn't physically hear them or see them. That sensory, that ability to relate to them caused him to get into a deep state of depression. Uh, so much that, you know, he became a champion advocate for no mask, you know, no isolation. And mm-hmm. and this is coming from a very liberal uh, justice. I mean, he's very, you know, very liberal in in the in the sense of social policies and those things. But he's really engaged in a campaign, he still does, that what it did is it segregated, you know, those with disabilities. Mm-hmm. But to your point, the the long impact of COVID isn't just he didn't suffer COVID, but he was a byproduct mm-hmm. of the results of what happened from COVID in the shutdown that impacted him to a point where he had to step down from the bench he sought treatment for several months, and he's back on the bench now. Yeah. And I texted him a, a few weeks ago and just giving encouragement about, you know, you got this. This is tough. But it really brings into perspective now that you mm-hmm. say that the patients themselves who are used to high-strung lives right. and running and doing all the things that they were doing, mm-hmm. how that would impact their psyche. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, the mental health difficulties that we see culturally are really historic, you know, huge levels of eating disorders in adolescents, for instance, you know, tremendous mental health problems in teenagers, huge problems in people who were or are disabled, who the way you might think about it were uniquely vulnerable before, right? Mm -hmm. And um, for them, the impact of COVID, whether it's simply uh, COVID in the culture or whether it's COVID that they experienced, the impact is really profound. And and what we've Mm -hmm. noted is that for people who were thriving before who developed COVID, those those folks are still th- thriving in some cases with long COVID because they have a lot of buffers, yeah. right? They've right. got long-term care insurance. They've got a partnership at a law firm. Sure. They're managing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for people who are already on the margins, yeah. um, this, was a, this was a hurricane yeah. uh, force wind that blew them right off, you it know? Did. So now yeah. they're sleeping in their car. Now right. they're couch surfing, now yeah. they're particularly hopeless. I think um, that's a community that we need to pay particular attention mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think that's that'll be our future episode. Yeah. And uh, can I ask you about when it comes to the mental health piece? Because one of the things that we are doing here at Hillsdale is our Center for Pain Management is offering stellate ganglion blocks to right. hopefully reverse or significantly reduce the issues from loss of taste and smell. Um, but early on in, co- in the COVID pandemic, I was reading an article about that and how that in and of itself and the lack of dopamine from not being able to taste and smell Absolutely. is also affecting mental health. How much of that are you seeing in your long COVID populations? It's really interesting. Um, during the early days of COVID, I was interacting with a reporter, I think, almost every day from USA Today, New York Times, Time, mm-hmm. Atlantic, uh, you know, you name it. And there were constant questions about lost taste and smell. Mm-hmm. And I was actually pretty dismissive of the impact of those, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and my routine comment had to do with the idea that, gosh, you know, in the spectrum, on the hierarchy of difficulties, right. that doesn't measure. And and a patient stopped me at one point, actually, and said, you know, you may not think this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm letting you know, actually, this is quite a big deal. It's a yeah. big deal for right. me. 
And I stopped in my tracks and thought, you know, I need to be a little more careful sure. about telling you what is and isn't a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and we mm-hmm. commonly see people with a loss of taste and smell, and it can impact them quite profoundly. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And um, other things do too. I interacted with somebody just yesterday. They have had ringing in their ears since getting COVID going yeah. on several right. years now. Right. And that's a huge problem for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, something that seems inconsequential, but that actually is quite profound. Right. Yeah, we, our CRNA shared with me that one of the patients that, you know, he administered the injection um, and she jumped up and she smelled a candle. Then he had her taste some food and she started weeping right. uh, because it's enjoyable. Right. You know, I mean, Absolutely. those are the, those are the things. Mm-hmm. You, what do you remember about your mom and dad's when you go to Portage right. is maybe mom the way the an apple pie. Exactly. When you the way the house smells. Yeah. Conjures up memories. Yeah. It conjures up that whole childhood like, mm-hmm. oh, right. I'm home again. Yeah. So, you know, all right. So you said there's, you know, 40 different definitions of what long COVID is. Uh, let's talk about treatment modalities right. for COVID because I'm assuming that there's a variety of those as well. What are you hearing and seeing relative to that? There are so many treatments, and and there's a narrative that I think is unhelpful, and that narrative, sincerely held, is that there's no treatment for long. Yeah, COVID, I agree with right? you. Right. I agree. And um, I no, think, hope. no hope. No hope. No hope. And I think the truth is um, there is no magic bullet as of True. yet, right? True. And we True. hope that there might be. But in the mental health space, yeah. let's say, there are very effective treatments. In the cognitive space, um, there are effective treatments. Um, in the physical space, the thing that has bedeviled us the most is this profound fatigue that patients yeah. experience. Yeah. People we, we who hear that, yeah. grapple with that, yeah. seems difficult to improve that. But we've had patients who have had quite remarkable recoveries, um, really using a range of approaches. Uh, Paxlovid has... Um, been one drug that has been used in clinical trials yeah. and in practice. Uh, in some cases, seems to be quite effective for some. For others, it's mm-hmm. not. In the context of cognitive problems, there have been some drug trials with a medication called guanfacine mm-hmm. used for ADD, ADHD. It's a non-stimulant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that seems to be promising. Mm-hmm. Um, the NIH RECOVER trial um, is a $1 billion trial that mm-hmm. has been heavily criticized for the glacial pace at which it's been moving, mm. but they are about to enroll hundreds and thousands of patients in uh, five or six trials trying yeah. to get at treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, I think treatment at the end of the day is what patients are looking for. Yeah. I think some people, unfortunately, bad actors have capitalized always, on, always are. right yeah. on this desperation yeah. yes, they have. and um, promised some cures yeah. mm-hmm. that are not effective. And that's been really discouraging. Yeah. And one of the things we do in our support groups regularly is we encourage patients to really be thoughtful about the treatments they're pursuing. In the same vein of the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably, probably is, is, right? right. Um, if you have the money to travel to Timbuktu to try an experimental Which therapy. Very few people very have. Very few people right. do. Yeah. If you do, um, I suppose that's fine. But if it requires you to take a second mortgage out on your house, right. then you need to be a little more reflective and cautious you yeah. know, before yeah. pursuing that. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's why we were so truly very careful before offering the stellate yeah. ganglion block um, because it's just not been it, it is experimental it's not been done enough for any really robust and peer reviewed data to be out there yet on it so we've been very clear with the public and also with individual patients who call about it who are interested with that this is not a guarantee right it may work it may not work and making sure that people have all the information to make an educated decision 
where there are people out there who are marketing the stellate ganglion block as a magic bullet. Right. Even yes. though we know it's, it's not. not. Yeah. And, you know, that clarity for patients is so important. And I would think especially with something like long COVID where the, the I mean, would you call it a syndrome or like a condition? How would you define it? Because there's so many different elements to it. But with something like that that's so new, there is a lot of opportunity for people to take advantage of patients who are desperate. Yeah, there there, there is a lot of opportunity. Um, in my book, I, I, I talk about uh, a cousin of mine from 1870 or 80, obviously never met him, you know, long since <laughs> right, right. Dr. Pierce uh, was his name. Huh. And you can still find uh, his bottles of tonic in some antique stores from oh, time wow. to time. I found one. Is that right? Um, yeah. And so he was a huckster. You know, he was a yeah. 19th century huckster who promised cures for anything and everything. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and he sold three million bottles, I think, of his tonic during during the years that he was producing these at a, at a factory in Buffalo. And um, in the book, I talk about the fact that, that that's what you've got to be cautious yeah. of, right? That right. you've got to be cautious yeah. of that. And that uh, sometimes the solution is not in a bottle, right? Right. But the solution sometimes is pressing into really hard things, mm-hmm. doing really hard work, and that work in many cases involves acceptance. And the idea there is um, if something is difficult in my life and I can't find a way to change it, I've gone to the best doctors, yeah. there doesn't seem to be a solution how can I find a way to accept this? How can I find a way to lean in? How can I allow for it, accommodate it? Mm-hmm. How can mm-hmm. I eventually appreciate it? And when people get to that place of acceptance, it's often transformative. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It can take months and years. But that's the treatment, actually, acceptance. Yeah. Uh, and when people are able to embrace that, they often get better. You, wow. you know, you said something interesting, um, support groups. You know, I, I have not heard of that before. Uh, so there there are formed groups now that are getting together to discuss it. Can you share that well, a little yeah, bit? Well, yeah, tell us about your program because yeah, you've sure. put together a, a a an option for patients that is very holistic and comprehensive, not yeah. just we're going to treat your respiratory symptoms, we're going to treat your fatigue. I mean, it's big picture, right? Exactly. Yeah, we do have support groups um, long before COVID had started. Mm-hmm. Um five or six years before COVID had started, we had started a support group for ICU survivors. Hmm. Um, There's a phenomenon not well-known called post-intensive care syndrome, and that is a set of conditions that people develop when they've been critically ill in the ICU. They, they, as with long COVID patients, often have brain damage. They have myopathy. They have a range of difficulties. They have mental health challenges due to the effects of being on a ventilator, Mm -hmm. due to the effects of septic shock, et cetera. And so we had been really supporting folks with PICs, is what it's called, in support groups for some time. We knew how to run them. Mm-hmm. And um, when COVID started, I thought, you know, this this apparatus that we've built for ICU survivors, I imagine it's going to apply to COVID patients. Yeah. And hmm. wow, did it ever. And, yeah. and it was a little like um, the line in the old movie, um, Field of Dreams, if you build it, they, they will come. come. Yeah. You know, we built it. And people just started coming. Wow. And so now we have five support groups. It's amazing. Um, it is. We have about 100 patients a week. Wow. They're from all over the world. We have a couple people from the UK, Canada, California. Yeah, it's it is amazing. amazing. And um, that dynamic of being in a community, they really do become intimate, meaningful communities. Being in a community with people who get you mm-hmm. in a way that other people don't, you know, who don't judge you, who don't have any expectations 
They share their story. You share yours. You connect around that. It's been really powerful. Mm. And we've seen profound benefits, especially in the mental health realm wow. with the support groups. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. That really is. Th- then the second follow-up was relative to research. Is the federal government um, putting any dollars, uh, any support towards this? And what do you what do you what kind of movement are we seeing there? They are so the the recover initiative um, that I referenced that that mm-hmm. that recover initiative was funded to the tune of about a billion dollars. So that was funded from it the was okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's become controversial because yeah. it's a little unclear as is sometimes true with the federal government, yeah. what happened to the money? You know, yeah. what, what do we yeah. have to show for this? Right. right. And I think many people feel like we don't have enough to show for it. But I think recently, um, about a month ago, yeah. the NIH finally announced that they were ready to start enrolling patients in some clinical trials. Okay. And okay. those clinical trials focus on improving mental health outcomes, improving cognitive outcomes, and in particular, um, improving the pernicious fatigue that is Mm -hmm. so problematic. And um, I think patients are cautious and wary. I Mm -hmm. think they're worried, as all of us are in these situations, about getting their hopes up, if you will, only to have them dash. When they're already maybe down. Exactly. But they're thoughtfully conceived, and um, we're hopeful those are going to make a big difference in the lives of patients. I think they they will. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Jim, how can those in rural communities with, at times, little to no access uh, to cutting-edge, you know, care, whether it is items we've discussed or in remote areas where there truly lack of transportation, lack of inability to even connect on the Internet, those type of things, which are significant. Um, what what are you seeing in terms of what can happen with those rural communities, um, and how can they benefit from services like this? Right. It's a gigantic problem. Um I I was a recipient some years ago now of a VA grant from their Department of Rural Health. And and I learned that there are communities (laughs) that are called rural and then communities that are called highly rural, right? Highly rural. And I think for people in a rural or highly rural community, um, there isn't a lot of access. You know, there are about 300 long COVID clinics in the United States. um, And and that's a a fine number. It should be bigger. But uh, if you're trying to get to... Um, Ann Arbor from Paradise, Michigan, right in the UP. Yeah, not gonna good happen. luck, right? Not it's gonna a happen. long right. way. It's, right. not, it's gonna not, gonna not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. So increasingly, um, these medical centers are moving solely to telehealth modalities, and oh. that I think is a really good development. Is a good actually. development. Mm-hmm. It's good development. Mm-hmm. Still um, challenging for communities like ours that have you know a, a good portion that are still uncovered by uh, broadband or any type of technology. It is. Right. It is, and I think people don't appreciate. I think many people don't appreciate how how much there are large swaths of the country yeah. mm-hmm. that still don't have internet. Yeah. Right. It's huge. Much less it's huge. a lot of our patients, uh, elderly. Yeah. Um, they have no idea, yeah. you know, with respect, uh, how to even log on to the internet. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Recently, someone said to me, what's a podcast? And I, I, know. I, I thought, you know, that's wow. true, though. You know, yeah. so um, I, I think when you add to that the fact that probably about a third of people with long COVID have cognitive problems, yeah. um, that creates it. it does, yeah. because literally they're having to figure out. Yeah. How do I log on? Navigating right, that. it's That's really difficult. hard. Yeah. But but I think starting with telehealth is really important. Yeah. Um, and and that's one thing that I think is really helpful. There are support groups that are online mm-hmm. in the form of uh, modalities like Facebook. 
Mm-hmm. And those are also very helpful. Yeah. I think one thing we need to do better at, though, is I think experts at um, major medical centers, whether they're Vanderbilt, University of Michigan, whatever, they need to do a much better job training their rural medical colleagues there you go. in um, some basic approaches mm-hmm. to treating long COVID. I agree with right? you. That and, was going to be my next statement. Right. Yeah, the clinical acumen of our primary care really exactly. needs to have an introduction of how do we treat these patients because there are no centers to exactly. send them to in, in rural communities like ours. Exactly. Right? Uh, so I think too many physicians great point. are unaware of the things that is very in true. the case of long COVID that work. So, for yeah. instance, if we take cognitive problems um, – you hear about brain fog a lot. That's a you commonly do. used term, yeah. right? And and I think a more accurate term in general is a brain injury. It's a brain injury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, physiatrists and neurologists and, to a certain extent, internists, they have some notion of what to do if a patient mm-hmm. has a brain injury. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. brain fog, who knows, right? Yeah. Right. That so, sounds more like, oh, we'll send that to the psychologist. It, exactly. Right? It really yeah. does. Yeah. So so the simple act of saying to them, um, we're going to educate you. Um, what would you do if a patient had a TBI, right? yeah. a traumatic brain injury? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you consider that same approach um, if a long COVID patient comes to you with brain fog, yeah. consider the same approach. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is education. Uh, you know, part of what has happened with my book that has been a surprising outcome, but a really lovely one, is that a lot of providers have uh, started relying on it, in broad strokes at least, Good. to understand better about long COVID mm-hmm. patients. Good. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those providers are from rural areas, and um, they're learning, right? They're being educated. And right. um, it's no fault of their own um, that they may not be completely up to speed Correct. on the complicated nuances yeah. of long COVID. They're not working in a hospital where people are doing research yeah. and presenting it every day, mm-hmm. right? So they play a key role, but I think people who are experts need to do a better job educating. I agree with right. you. And I, Jim, I've even had physicians who have you know, contracted COVID uh, who've come to me a year later and said, I still have no uh, return of my my taste or my smell. Right. They yeah. struggle as right. physicians yeah. of knowing what resources are available. That So there needs to be continuing medical education. You know, I have tasked our medical director, Dr. Shooker, with the reality of you got to get this out because he right. is really a champion yeah. of, of discussing these type of issues, having suffered from it himself and having some of those side effects. He, I've said, listen, you have got to go out and beat that drum for our rural communities yeah. mm-hmm. because they are lacking that information. Right. And so their reliance on, well, send them to the center. Right. For a community like ours, that is non-existent. It's not, so it's I not, agree with you. Yeah, it's not viable. And and I think as it relates to physicians with COVID, it's really interesting. About a year ago, I got a direct message on Twitter from a physician colleague of mine. And, and he said, you know, I don't publicize this, but I have long COVID. And he said, in particular, I've got cognitive problems, yeah. and I'm yeah. really afraid to talk about those. Correct. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, for understandable he's going to go before reasons. the sanction board yeah, exactly. now because he's That's admitted what he's, he's really a- worried about. Absolutely. Right. right. So I think got to break that stigma. We do. We do. Yeah. And and I think one way we can begin to break it, um, and one thing I talk about in my in my book is my own chronic illness. My own chronic illness involves obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. I developed it in 2018. I didn't want it. I wasn't expecting yeah. it to show yeah. up. It did. And um, initially, 
I wanted to tell exactly no one about that, right? right. No one, right. not even my mm. own family. Correct. Mm-hmm. And um, as a leader at Vanderbilt and in other communities, what I've learned is that as I tell my story, it, it creates an opening it for other people to do the yes, same, right. Right? right? So I think physicians and physician leaders and administrators, yes. if we can be bolder in telling our own stories, Correct. being vulnerable, I think we invite people to do the same. Yeah. Um, right. The problem is no one wants to be the one to take the first step. They don't. And right. it's difficult, uh, especially in the stigma that, you know, that that surrounds it. Mm-hmm. And then the conversations that they're hard to have. Right. Right. And yeah. we know that. And so let's talk a little bit about your book, yeah. because sure. I think we talk about dispelling some of that. So why don't you just take us through a little uh, a journey of, you know, what what this encompasses, a little bit about the purpose behind the book. Uh, and what, what do you... What do you want to get out of this for the community? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I'm I'm very practical at the end of the day, um, and and I think I always have been um, in in classes in coursework. Uh, I was pretty impatient, and and my thought was always, gosh. Yeah, that's beautiful, that theory, but let's break it down, right? Yeah, like, right. How, how how is that going to help people right. um, in the pew, so to speak? Yeah. Right? Yeah, how is it going to help people? Yeah. And um, I felt like early on in the pandemic, I was learning a lot of lessons about ways to think about COVID, ways to engage COVID, um, ways to build a team to help you treat long COVID. And I felt like a lot of the insights I had were not readily available to patients, uh, perhaps the 100 people in our support group, but not people... Uh, mm-hmm. beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to write a book. I should write a book. And um, I found out, first of all, that it's not quite that easy. You know, you don't <laughs> just decide to write one. Right. Right. Um, you find, in my case, a book coach, and then yeah. you pitch an idea to a publisher and got to find an agent. If you're if you're blessed enough, you can find those things. Oh, yeah. In my case, right. I was. That's awesome. And um, I had six months to write the book because um, they were concerned, rightly so, that the culture was ready to shifting. forget about COVID, yeah, the shifting. right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and it was. And I uh, wrote the book in six months, and um, it includes 10 or 11 chapters. I don't remember how many we landed on, but um, they're aimed at really being a roadmap for people with a long COVID. Okay. So mm-hmm. they talk about um, how to find a provider that is going to be supportive of you in your long COVID journey. They talk about how to engage that provider at the very first appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about what to do if people aren't believing you. Um, the mm. book talks about what PTSD looks like in the context of long COVID, what brain injuries look like, mm-hmm. um, what you should do if you have those challenges. Um, importantly, it talks about how to find the right kinds of treatment, because especially in the mental health treatment space, what we often see is a mismatch between um, what I'm presenting to you with and the type of treatment you're providing. Correct. Mm. So um, too many people are in therapy where it really is the, hey, let's sit down, talk about your family, right? Let's talk about your childhood. Yeah. Let's talk about the weather. Well, that's not strategically going to help you mm. with your PTSD, Correct. Yeah. right? Yeah. So um, it's really a roadmap. It talks a lot about hope. Um, there's a word. Critical. That sh- it, it is hope critical. Is. It is. And um you know, there's a there's a word that is used on Twitter a lot, very negatively. I don't even know it was a word. The word is hopium, and and hopium, hopium. yeah, never hopium. Heard. Is that like toxic positivity? That's what it is. And okay. I've been accused a, a few me. times of that, that right? toxic positivity. Hopium. Hopium. I've never heard of that. Yeah, well, then I have and, a lot of that. I'm yeah, yeah, it could be. <laughs> Sorry. And so hopium refers, I think, to the idea that 
that you're preaching hope that is not grounded in anything substantial. Yeah. And okay. I think um, my hmm. belief is the book is not about hopium. It's actually about hope. Yeah. And right. it's about hope because long before COVID-19 showed yeah. up, people have found a way to live rich lives mm -hmm. in the context of really hard things. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were to summarize the book in a sentence or two, what I hope people would get out of it, I hope what people will get out of it is this idea that your symptoms don't have to go completely away. I hope they do. They don't have to go completely away for you to be better, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to wait for everything to resolve to live a rich life. And I think people have really um, sadly come to believe in many cases that if I don't get exactly back to where I was on my I'm best not. day right yeah. before I got COVID, my life is not going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And the message that that I want to promote earnestly is, you know, we want you to get back to your best life, sure. Right. But if you don't, you can still live a really meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that because I've seen it in my own life in yeah. the context of OCD, yeah. and I've seen it in the lives of countless long COVID patients who are able mm. to say, my life is different than it was before, and that's okay. Yeah. I can still right. find a way to have a yeah, meaningful life. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to share with you my life verse yeah. is uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Ah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Yes. So that strikes a chord with me when you talk about hope, the you know, mm -hmm. kind of like that substance of things not seen, but that we know are at work. And without that hope, uh, cancer patients, they mm -hmm. hold on to hope. Exactly. And, and that is what gets them through some of those darkest right. days. And you're giving practical ways for people to engage with that hope, yes. right? right? You're not just saying, not oh, there are options, false. have hope, read my book. It's like, the tools that are in the book are the reason for you to have the hope Correct. to believe that there is a, a better day ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the idea being that hope and anxiety, let's yeah. say, mm -hmm. can coexist. Yes. Right? Yeah. Hope and sure. sadness can coexist. coexist. And, and often the way that some people frame hope is that can only exist, happiness can only exist – if, if all these problems have been resolved. No, but the no, truth is no. they can coexist. I, right. I, I'm holding a, a pen in front of me here. Yeah. You mentioned a, a, a life verse, and I'm yeah. a follower of Christ, and yeah. I, I talk about that as appropriate. You know, sure. I'm careful not to hit anybody over the head with my faith, but but my wife engraved this pen. It, it, it's lovely. She stopped buying me pens long time ago because I lose them a lot, right? I lose them. <laughs> but if she, it's a good one, you're going to hold on well, to it. Well, she bought me a really nice one many years ago, and I left it at a gas station oh, in California, no. and I was down the 5 or the 405 an hour later, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not even going to turn around because no. I know it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. Yeah. But this has an inscription. It's 2 Timothy 1.7, yeah. yeah. um, and that verse says, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, power. love, mm -hmm. someone. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think you can take that out of a religious context sure if you, you want to, and you can embrace this idea that um, being controlled by fear mm -hmm. while attractive is not a healthy way to live, yeah. right? Yeah. And digging down deep and finding courage yeah. um, is a far better choice. And, right. and I think— It's harder work, though, right? It's harder work. It is hard work. It's really hard work. Because it's, 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 it's not the natural it's not the reaction. No. It's, it's usually hard work. It is. And, yeah. and, it requires you know, more action. It, it does. does. And, and one of the things that's lovely about our support groups is that I would say 
alone without any social support, without mm-hmm. friends, without people that care for you, um, it's exquisitely hard mm-hmm. yeah. to lean into certain hard things, right? Yeah. But when people are standing beside you arm in arm saying, this is hard and you can do hard things right. because you're really strong. You know, I've lived this life with you. I've walked this road with you. You're yeah. strong. Yeah. That's a really potent recipe right. for recovery, and it's one mm-hmm. that I really promote. Yeah, Jim, I, I want to ask you a quick question yeah. relative to support. Beyond a support group, you know, the structure of a family and, and you know, your church, your pastor, those type of people, you know— um, it's important. Would you say it's important that you surround yourself, you know, with those support mechanisms? And I, and there are people, and there are parts in our country where rule they don't have the support groups like we have. What would you? What advice would you give them? Who do they lean on? Yeah, well, I've, and can hospitals or healthcare providers in rural communities that have connectivity be a somehow a conduit for that patient who may not be able to get to a large community um, like, you know, Nashville that has a clinic, um, but they could maybe get to their local hospital that has internet access. I mean, are there opportunities for other rural healthcare providers to connect with clinics like yours to get that access? Yeah, absolutely. So, so a couple things, my predict, my predictions about a lot of things are, are sometimes on and sometimes off, right? Like I would have imagined, that the Detroit Lions would have won the Super Bowl by now, right? Hasn't <laughs> happened, right? Yeah, so I've sometimes been my predictions to do it are for years, yeah, I feel right. You. Sometimes <laughs> my I do predictions. I hope where that. Yeah, is, right. That's the nature being. Cowboys my fan. predictions are sometimes off, but one thing <laughs> I was sure that I knew about was I was sure that when people learned about our support groups, that 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 folks would just take up the mantle all over the country yeah. and start leading them, and and. I'm sad to say that hasn't really happened. Not mm-hmm. really sure why it hasn't happened. So I would say... Um, you think it's because people just feel inadequate? Like they don't feel like they know enough to do it successfully, I so they so. don't even want to try? I think a lot of it is, um, you know, the old saying, if if you waited till you were ready to have a baby, you'd never have a baby. Have a baby. Right, right. 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 You, you waited till you're ready. Yeah. So I think there's an element of people saying... Gosh, I don't know how to lead a support group, right? I'm not right. ready. And I would say, well, you know, um, jump in the deep end of the pool, right? Yeah, like right, the yeah. water's fine. Like yeah. and and we'll help you. You yeah. know, we'll we'll right. help you. Um, so I think there is a need for that. And I would say, for instance, if there's somebody at Hillsdale Hospital who would say, Oh gosh, I'd love to start a support group for ICU survivors, yeah. we'll help you do it. Right. Right. Yeah. Like right. we'll help you do it. Yeah. Um, I think the other point though. And there's an anecdote in my book that talks about this, and I'll share it really quickly. Um, my wife and I moved from Kalamazoo to California to go to graduate school. This was, you know, 25 years ago now. And um, we started attending a church because often the church has been kind of the starting place for us, mm-hmm. right, where we find a community. And we were attending the Sunday school class, and nobody was very friendly. And and Michelle, as we were driving down Imperial Highway, she would cry on mm-hmm. on the way to Sunday school mm-hmm. and cry on the way back. We felt really isolated. I felt like I kind of brought us to the desert to, to die, yeah. so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And one day in Sunday school, as is always the case, you know, somebody stood up and took prayer requests, whatever. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be vulnerable today. Yeah. And so I raised my hand, you know, and I said, I'm Jim Jackson. This is my wife, Michelle. We don't know anybody here. We've been attending for a while. We're having a really hard time. 
and uh, we don't have any friends. We're really sad. I mean, I was really raw, wow. and I felt totally exposed, yeah. Yeah. right? And Michelle crying. Yeah. And we got home back in those days. You had these old clunky answering machines, right. you know, with a number of calls. You could see and the, the red light blinking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there were ten or twelve calls, and and they were all people from the Sunday school class oh, who wow. had reached out to us. And and the point of that is often. Um, if people are going to participate in communities or build mm-hmm. friendships that they don't have, it's going to require a level of vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we talk about with our patients all the time, that um, people probably want to be your friend. There's somebody who yep. wants to care for you, but that might not happen automatically, right? Mm-hmm. It might take you reaching out, raising your hand, in effect, saying, hey, I'm really lonely. I'm having a hard time. Mm-hmm. And it might require you to dig down deep and to call that old high school friend from 1984, right, who you're pretty yeah. sure will still take yeah. your call, right. Right? right? And it might require you saying to them, I really... hey, Bob, it's been a long time. Yeah. I need a friend, right? Yeah. right. And, it's true. And uh, it's not that simple, but when people are oh. able to take off that yeah. mask, people usually respond yeah. well to that. Yeah. yeah. And that's where healing begins. Exactly. It does. It does. The name of the book? Clearing the Fog. Clearing the Fog. All right. Hillsdale Hospital is purchasing 50 copies of those. We want to give those to our uh, patients that are up on our pain clinic that are receiving um, some of the injections that we've talked about. Uh, as well as if you're listening today, we're going to give away 10 copies of those. Just go ahead and make notification here uh, to Rachel, and we would love to get you a copy of that book. But I feel it's important uh, for our patients to understand as we're trying to. And we've had, I want to be very transparent. Our success rate's about thirty-five percent. Yeah, with with the right. uh, with these injections that we're giving. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's still those who are without right. hope. Absolutely, and right. I want them to have an answer to that hope, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which hopefully they'll find within your book. So, yeah. however, I can get to fifty copies. Um, I'd yeah. like to get that. And how can forward. our listeners get a copy if they want to buy yeah. one themselves? Sure. Yes. If they if they don't get one of our ten, which yep. you can email marketing at hillsdalehospital.com, and the first ten will get you one. Yep. So they but can if they bu- don't get one of those ten, where yes. do they get they it? They can buy it on Amazon. Okay. Clearing the fog. We'll put a link in the show. A long well. title from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, a practical guide. But right. okay. you don't title, need all of that. Just, <laughs> all just type in James Jackson Clearing the Fog. And um, we'll talk to you about 50 copies. I'll talk to my publisher and we'll let you know how you go about purchasing those. And um, uh, let's continue this connection we've yes. made here. Yep. Yes. I, yeah. I hope we can. This mm-hmm. has been really lovely. It'll be and great. Really um, and love to be able to bring some of the work that we're doing in and, and have you really look at some of this data that we're collecting right now and some of the impact of, of what we're administering up in our pain clinic. And really, you know, maybe some even testimonials sure. of patients whose life have been transformed. So we could spend days talking to you, Jim. And yeah. it's been a great pleasure to have you here. It's great to have you back in your home state of Michigan, but great to have you here at Hillsdale Hospital. Uh, And it's great to learn about the work that you've done and the hope that you're inspiring in lives across this country, that there is a promise and a hope here that can exist for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, call on someone. The message is reach out to someone. Uh, And there's someone that can love on you. There's someone that can give give you an opportunity maybe for maybe for some relief. We're not saying it's a guarantee, but certainly you're not alone is the message. And you have options. 200 million people around the world, we think, have long COVID. You know, that's more people than live in the country of Mexico, right? So you're not alone. You're You're not not alone. alone. So thank you. I I was on a podcast yesterday. I closed it with 
go blue and the host said, uh, <laughs> go green. So uh, I won't make that mistake today, okay. but thank you. Absolutely. It's great to have you today. Yeah, thank you. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. Um, you're from rural community, you know, and uh, rural Michigan. Sure. Really. Uh, what is your most memorable rural experience or something that is just reflective of the rural life that you once lived or if you're in a rural community now, now live? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um I, I I did uh, grow up the grandparents of farmers. They had what was left of a farm yeah. when I was at their house and um, have lived in some small rural places. Um, I, I think um, fishing in a creek, right? That is. That's a common That's a rural, rural experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, fishing for... I thought it was bass, um, catching <laughs> something that felt a little funky. It didn't seem like he was swimming quite the right way, right? Oh. And uh, I had hooked a catfish, catfish. by the tail, by right? The tail. Oh and, yeah, and so I reeled him in, not much of a fighter. So no. that might be a, catching a catfish by the Ca- tail yeah. and a little farm pond. Yeah. That could be the next title of your book. It could. Catching uh, it a could. catfish by, by the tail. You that know, these publishers like are pretty one. picky about they that. They but uh, yeah, are. I can give that a try. All right. Yeah. Sounds Thank great. you. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.